I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, moving people and Milky Way facelift. In addition, we're joined by Mr. Ted Floyd, who will discuss the Smithsonian Field Guide. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And your world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Grok Science Show. How you doing, Frank? Pretty international. Indeed. I think we've decided to branch out and take over the world. Yeah, not just stay in that little town in California, huh? <laughs> I don't think we can mention that town. I think it's uh, copyrighted. <laughs> That's what I heard, too. Although I go to that supermarket. <laughs> uh, well, here we are, the Grok Science Show. We rebranded much like KFC did way back when they no longer became Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's what it was? <laughs> Apparently, Kentucky and fried it was not appealing to consumers. Oh, geez. Okay. I thought it was Kraft's fried chicken. <laughs> Either way, it's unhealthy for you. <laughs> but the Grok Science Show is very healthy for you, I think. Indeed. Healthy for your mind. <laughs> yes. How's Japan, by the way? Actually, pretty nice. It's kind of humid, actually. Oh, is it? Fortunately, but it's good for me because it drains out my sinuses. <laughs> well, the sushi is good for you, too, right? And the whale. Oh, I guess I'm not supposed to mention that either. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, you know, all these endangered life forms. <laughs> Just turn up the global warming a bit, and then they'll be cooked ready to go in the ocean, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, ready to serve. <laughs> Guess wherever we are, science is going on uh-huh. everywhere, in fact, right? Yeah, in Chicago, there's a lot of great stuff going on here as far as science. Uh-huh. We'll find out in the days and months and years to come. Indeed. In the rebranded Grok Science Show. <laughs> <laughs> here on the internet. And the world, really. All right, so we're in what? We're, we're all over. Uh, well, it's good to be uh, out and about in the world, and of course, if you're out and about in the world, what is the most important thing where you are walking around? All you need is an iPhone, right? <laughs> has GPS now. Well, it's funny you should mention that because some researchers have used the cell phone uh-huh. to actually track the movement of individuals. Okay, so do they like move like ants then? <laughs> apparently ants have more complex behavior than humans. <laughs> so we're not really that sophisticated then. No, apparently we stay in our one or two or three favorite choices. Other than that, we don't move around much more. 
Well, I like going to coffee. <laughs> you know, get the caffeine. Ah, now we know where to find you. So researchers are interested in how viruses might spread in an epidemic. Okay. So they're interested in how interactions between people might happen from place to place. Right. The researchers did a study earlier where they actually tracked the movement of a dollar bill. Okay. But that's not the best metric because a dollar bill can pass hands very quickly. It's just one of those dollar bills that has that little special stamp that says, oh, please check out on the internet if you see this dollar bill. Right. Log in and notice location. Right. Yeah. So that's not the best metric for looking at individuals. Mm-hmm. And so they decided to look at the cell phone usage or just track the cell phone movement. Okay. About 100,000 users for six months and just looking at which cell phone tower they're next to. And they basically just saw that they spent time in few locations and that you could usually find them in one of these three or four locations with high probability. And so these people who are more prone to spread diseases, are they like social butterflies that go from place to place more often, are less sticky to places? <laughs> That's a good question. Or the places that they hang out more often are you know, like <laughs> hubs. The hubs for disease spread, you know, public bathhouse or something. <laughs> anyway, so this was a very fascinating. It was actually done by a group of physicists at Northwestern University led by Albert Laszlo Barabasi. And it was published not in our favorite journal, but Nature. <laughs> oh, naturel. So, Charles, do you ever go out and count the stars? By my last count, I think there are 10 stars in the universe. Okay, and one of them is the sun, right? Oh, now there's 11, see? <laughs> I'm going to have to start using my toes now to count. <laughs> the moon doesn't count, by the way. But it turned out a scientist named Herschel tried to do this back in 1765 using his small optical telescope. His small optical telescope. Okay. Yes, and what he was trying to do was trying to map out the Milky Way. The Milky Way. Telescopes have improved a bit since then, and now we can see, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of stars. Right. But it looks like the shape of the Milky Way is still not quite determined, and the latest findings has basically given a facelift. So it was previously thought that galaxies like the Milky Way should have multiple arms, at least four, and it turns out we only have two. So is that suggesting that these other arms never formed? It turns out now that using this uh, new instrument called a Spitzer Space Telescope, that the two of these arms are actually side branches of the other bigger two. Two big arms and two small arms. Small arms, okay. Sort of like a deformed octopus, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would have eight big arms and eight deformed arms. (laughs) Could be tasty, too. Yeah, as well. It's all part of God's majesty. (laughs) (laughs) Up until now, it's been actually pretty hard to map the Milky Way for various reasons. Uh, For one, the solar system's actually at the periphery, and there's just too much dust and other particles which prevent us seeing out into the center and about. But with this new telescope, they can see through this dust and get more clarity. So they've also discovered that the central bar that the galaxy turns around is twice as big as previously thought. Oh, okay. So does that mean there's more stars there? I'm not sure about more stars, but the shape of the galaxy is a bit different from what they thought it was before. Okay. This does certainly paint a much better picture, but I'm sure with bigger telescopes in the future, we're going to get even a better idea of how uh, galaxies should really look like. So this work is led by Avi Lode at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center of Astrophysics, and it's a nice article in Science Now. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, Mr. Ted Floyd will join us to discuss the Smithsonian Bird Guide. So stay tuned.
back to the program. Well, birds offer a continual source of fascination, amazement, and inspiration for those interested in observing them. With over 7 million birding enthusiasts in the country, observing birds in their natural habitat is an ongoing endeavor for many. Well, joining us today on the show is Mr. Ted Floyd. Mr. Floyd is the editor of Birding Magazine and one of the foremost birding experts in the world. He has penned the new book, Smithsonian Field Guide to Birds of North America, which discusses bird identification for enthusiasts everywhere. Mr. Floyd, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. Well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program. This is, I think, really a very fascinating book, especially for bird enthusiasts. I'm curious if maybe you could talk a little bit about the history of birding in the United States. Well, it goes back quite some time. I think that people have been observing birds for as long as there have been people in the United States, but uh, and indeed in uh, the lands before uh, the United States. But um, I think that birding in its sort of modern form really started to show up in the 1960s and 1970s. It was sort of an outgrowth of the, uh, the environmental movement at that time and then really became sort of modern uh, in the uh, 1980s, 1990s, and is still an evolving enterprise. So birding, sort of the way we view it now, is something quite recent. Nice. There's obviously been a lot of institutions involved in that, but have there been many resources for uh, bird enthusiasts? Yeah, and that also is something that is sort of evolutionary. Certainly, we've had good field guides for uh, several generations now, going back to the time of the Peterson Field Guide in the 1930s, but the field guide genre really has been evolving over the years. Travel, particular air travel, and birders sort of making use of that in the 1970s and 1980s has changed the way that we go birding. And, and the whole digital revolution, really picking up in just the past several years, has affected birding greatly. So birding is uh, still really undergoing a lot of changes. So do you see that there's an increased interest in birding? That's what everybody says, and I'm certainly seeing it myself as well. There are some formal surveys out there uh, that indicate the number of people who either call themselves birders or who do the sorts of activities that we would consider to be birding has very much been on the increase very steadily for the past several decades. So uh, in the United States, for certain, there has been quite an increase in the number of birders. I see. So what does it really take to be a, a real birder? <laughs> a, a, a real birder. Well, I really like the approach that, that Ken Kaufman, uh, another bird expert, has taken. Uh, his, his viewpoint is basically that if you uh, enjoy birds, you're a good birder, and that if you enjoy birds a lot, then you're a great birder. And I think that really is, is the key to it. We should never really sort of confuse enjoyment with skill. And if you really enjoy getting outside or even staying inside, uh, say, from your kitchen window and observing birds, I think that you're a real birder. Well, they are certainly very fascinating. I'm curious what inspired you to actually compile this book. Well, I'd been thinking about field guides for a long, long time. I had sort of a background in, in education, uh, and in particular in environmental education. And ever since I was a teenager, actually, I've been wondered about what it would take to build the perfect bird book. <laughs> mm. The particular case of the Smithsonian Guide is one that sort of just sort of came together at the right time. Uh, several people sort of, I think, kind of converged on the same idea about what a really good guide would be, and I got involved in, in the project, and sort of the, the rest, as they say, is, is history. But I, I've been thinking about what it would take to make a, a perfect field guide, or at least, let's say, a near-perfect field guide for, for quite some time now. What elements go into a good field guide? <laughs> yes, that is the obvious follow-up <laughs> question, isn't it? Well, maybe I should sort of back up a step and say that there are a lot of field guides out there right now, and I'm really interested in sort of two major factors. The, the first is, uh, or, or sort of two major aspects of a field guide. The first is the idea of integrating all the information that is out there. I think that bird watchers, birders, maybe human beings in general, have a tendency to 
compartmentalize and isolate information. And that certainly is something that um, I have seen in a lot of other field guides. So you may have a book or, or a bird watcher who's really good at understanding the way a bird looks or the bird in the environment or the bird's uh, conservation needs or the way the bird sounds. But I've rarely seen all of those treated in a sort of integrated or, as we like to say, a holistic fashion. So I think this book really puts together all the different aspects of a bird's biology, its physical appearance, its um, habitat needs, and so forth, and brings those all together in the identification process. Uh, the other, the, the second answer to my question, to your question, would be that I think that the type of birder out there is, is also is evolutionary, that modern birders really sort of crave more of a um, holistic approach to, to studying birds and to studying the, the natural world. So this is not just sort of a, an automatic educational need, but, but it also really reflects a change in the way that the birders are behaving these days, the way that birders are looking at the world today. I see. So it's really just trying to put the bird in its context in, of the environment as well. I think context is an excellent word there, uh, that it's just so easy to look at the colors and patterns on a bird or the bird's habitat or the bird's vocalizations, but to take it to the next step, to put all those things together, to uh, assemble them into a, a single package is what we've really tried to do uh, with this book. And I think it's what a lot of birders are, have been clamoring for for quite some time now. Indeed, indeed. Well, one of the other features that the book comes with is a CD full of bird songs as well. That's right. It's a, it's a DVD. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I believe that about 137 of the most uh, widespread and likely to be encountered birds in North America are in there, and we have uh, many hundreds more clips of bird songs. And the idea is really to get people to focus in on the birds that they're fairly likely to hear around their home, their garden, their park, or something like that. Not all the birds. I think that would be too overwhelming. But most of the birds that you're likely to hear uh, in your neighborhood and most of the vocalizations that you're likely to hear are included on that DVD. And then also, very importantly, this gets back to that holistic uh, or integrated idea of looking at, at and, and listening to birds. We have images of the birds on the, on the DVD as well. So you can listen to the bird and look at it at the same time. And, of course, to be uh, modern about it, too, you can very quickly download all of that information to your MP3 player or to your iPod or something like that and actually use it in the field. It's really very handy, I think. <laughs> There's a little bit of talk regarding conservation of birds. Is there much being done regarding sort of a decline in bird species as well? Right. I think that uh, there's a great deal of work being done now by various agencies and interests out there, uh, maybe once again returning to that integrated or a holistic theme. An organization called Partners in Flight uh, is really bringing together all of the various interests that are out there. There are so many parties, so many persons who are concerned with bird conservation, and their efforts until not that long ago were a little bit disparate, a little bit sort of disconnected. Not everybody knew what everybody else was doing, so I think that really bringing together all the talent that is out there in the, um, the government agencies and universities and museums, uh, in uh, not-for-profits, and of course in the, uh, the, the birding community as well, is something that really is coming to play now. I think some really important work is being done on the front of, say, habitat uh, protection and also uh, beginning to look at some issues having to do with climate change. Mm -hmm. So for those birders who are interested in that type of issue, are there organizations they can get involved in? Well, Partners in Flight is certainly an organization that uh, would welcome the involvement of anybody. The organization that I'm involved with, the American Birding Association, certainly has a uh, conservation uh, emphasis, an increasing emphasis to what it is doing. Um, other sort of meat and potatoes organizations that do really good work on behalf of birds would include the Audubon Society, uh, the Nature Conservancy, groups like that. I'm curious, maybe for those people who have an interest in birds but never really uh, got into it seriously, are there any recommendations for them on how to go about birding? 
the best key there, I think, is just to get outside, to start to look at birds, to start to listen to birds, practice, practice, practice. It's really all about experience. You can't go wrong uh, by, by going outside, or even if you can't go outside, by simply observing from, from a window and starting to pay attention to the, to the natural world. Um, I don't want to be too glib, but I would say that after that, sort of everything starts to, to fall into place. Uh, you start to notice colors and patterns, and then you start to notice things about the size and shape of a bird. You start to hear different vocalizations. Um, this sort of leads you to to the library, or in this day and age, to the internet, uh, to bird clubs, to other birders. So um, I would say that there's just no substitute for experience. Getting out there, uh, looking at birds, listening to birds, uh, will sort of lead to a broader awareness of the birds and eventually to a skill at identifying them. Mm-hmm. How did you yourself get involved in birding? Well, I started out as a uh, as a young teen. It's just one of those uh, sort of uh, 12 or 13 year old things. Um, I really got fired up about the birds around my uh, neighborhood in uh, in Pittsburgh, which which is where I where, where I grew up. And sort of one of those one thing led to another type of developments for me. Um, I just started to notice the birds, started to put names on them, started to get curious about their comings and goings, and um, that sort of I think brought me the exposure to the to the broader world of, of birds and nature. Yeah, the book really has a number of very uh, colorful photographs. I mean, how are all these compiled? And I'm glad you asked that question. So the uh, the photographs are mainly digital. So again, that sort of modern aspect to the book right there. Many of the photographs were taken in the past five or six years by some of the top bird photographers in the world. Because they are digital, I think we're really seeing a lot of action shots, a lot of natural photos, if you will. Digital photography, as they say, is free. That's a little bit glib, but you know, basically what we mean is you can go out and take a hundred or even a thousand photos of the same bird. You don't have to worry about the cost of film and you can go through all those images and choose the one image that is just perfectly composed or that really shows the bird doing some behavior, flying away, feeding its young or something like that. So I think that these digital photographs in the book really, really do a great job of capturing the bird uh, in its essence in, in the wild. There aren't many, if you will, sort of a, you know, two-dimensional flat images uh, in, in the book. I think the, you really see a lot of photos of birds doing what they do in real life. Again, so emphasizing that whole bird approach that you talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm curious, what are some of your favorite birds? <laughs> Uh, my all-time favorite bird, believe it or not, is a, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a bird called the Swainson's Thrush. Uh, it, it is in that uh, field guide. Um, it's a bird that is easy to overlook, but that is all over the place. It's one of the most uh, abundant long-distance migrants in North America. Uh, it has the fascinating behavior, uh, like many other birds, of migrating by night. And you can actually go outside and listen to them at night in the spring and fall. Um, the nighttime passage of Swainson's Thrushes is fairly conspicuous all over North America. America, maybe most of all in the, in the Midwest and, uh, and, and in eastern North America. And there's just something for me very evocative about going outside and uh, hearing this call. It's very, very easily recognized, not being able to see anything up there, but to know that thousands of uh, birds, uh, thrushes, and other species are, are migrating over. It also has a very, very beautiful song that it sings on the breeding grounds and sometimes in migration. It's also a bird that reminds me of the, uh, the, the conservation angle. Uh, it depends uh, in the summer months on boreal forests in Canada, uh, which are facing threats from logging for the paper industry. And then also uh, in the uh, winter months, it winters mainly in South America where it faces uh, another form of uh, deforestation threat. And even on the migration routes through the United States, uh, there are many perils faced by the bird. So it's a beautiful bird. It sings a beautiful song. It's a fascinating nocturnal migrant, and it's very much a, um, a bird of conservation concern. Mm, well, definitely have to try and keep a lookout for them. And, and, and uh, they are all over the place during the, uh, the spring and fall anywhere in the United States. All right. I'm curious, what are some of the more popular birds that are out there that uh, people tend to favor? 
you know, that's such a uh, personal thing. You mm-hmm. know, I, I'm tempted to say birds like cardinals and chickadees and peregrine falcons, and, and I'm sure that there are uh, many people who are attracted to those birds, but I'm just as likely to find somebody whose favorite bird is the black-billed magpie or the mm-hmm. red tit or even the, the Nelson sharp-tailed sparrow. Uh, so often I think that uh, we just have a personal encounter with a bird that really gets us fired up uh, for, for some reason. I just a few days ago was talking with a, a lifelong biologist whose favorite bird is the chipping sparrow you know to, to talk about an ordinary bird the, the chipping sparrow but it's a bird that really caused him to look at the uh, natural world in a different way and, and the chipping sparrow is his favorite so I, I do think it's sort of personal and everybody seems to have their own favorite mm. well certainly uh, encourages people to go out and pick their own then <laughs> mm-hmm. absolutely uh well we're running slightly out of time i'm curious if you maybe have some final words regarding the whole issue of birding you know, I'd say that birding is, and bird study and birds in general are something that, on the one hand, you know, there are many concerns about, there are many challenges uh, for, for birders to, to really get serious about. Conservation and management of bird populations is a, is a big deal, and there's a lot of work to be done. On the other hand, I think we can really be hopeful about what's, what's going on. Uh, people really have made a difference in the welfare of a lot of bird species in North America, uh, certain raptors, certain water birds, um, bluebirds, and, and other species. So, yes, there's work to be done. Yes, there are challenges ahead, um, and you know I don't want to sugarcoat anything. But but on the other hand, uh, bird watchers, ordinary bird watchers in, in, in North America, have made quite a difference in the welfare of many bird species during the past 40 or 50 years. Well, it's really a very exciting and I think uh, interesting time for birding right now. So uh, hopefully people will go take a look at your new book, which of course is the Smithsonian Field Guide to the Birds of North America. Uh, Mr. Floyd, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. My pleasure. And you're just listening to Mr. Ted Floyd discussing the Smithsonian Bird Guide. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Talking to the songbirds yesterday Flew me to a pest not far away She's a little pilot in my mind Singing songs of love to pass the time Gonna write a song so she can see Give her all the love she to me, talk of better days that have yet to come. Never fell this love from anyone. She's not anyone. She's not anyone. She's not anyone. All right, uh, we're ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, what kind of bird would they be? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they were a bird, what kind of bird would they be, and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Floyd, ready to play the game? I guess I am. <laughs> okay, here we go. Person number one, what kind of bird would he be? Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Well, um, to the extent that I know anything about Donald Trump, I think of a uh, fairly flamboyant character. So why don't we go with the painted bunting? It is one of the uh, gaudiest and most flamboyant birds in North America. He's certainly that. (laughs) Uh, Number two is the Birdman of Alcatraz, Robert Stroud. (laughs) What's funny, I've actually been to Alcatraz. It's a uh, fascinating place biologically, and I saw one of my uh, first ever black oyster catchers out there. It's a uh, beautiful uh, black bird with a uh, bright orange bill. There's almost something sort of 
prison colored about it, all <laughs> black and orange like that. So let's go with the uh, the black oyster catcher for the bird band of Alcatraz. Uh, all right. Well, all right. Uh, number three is the starlet Paris Hilton. <laughs> I never thought about that. I, I want sort of another a flamboyant bird, perhaps, for uh, for, uh, for Paris Hilton. Uh, we've already taken up the painted bunting, haven't we? So uh, let's go for a, a very uh, flirtatious American swallow-tailed kite, or the current name is the swallow-tailed kite for that bird. So I'm not sure what swallow-tailed kite aficionados are going to say, but we'll say that the swallow-tailed kite is Paris Hilton. All right. Uh, number four is uh, John Jacob Audubon. Audubon. Um, it's funny. At one point, I knew what Audubon's favorite bird actually was, and that is escaping me right now. But Audubon was so attracted to the whole idea, the whole um, sort of ideal of the American wilderness. So let's go for a, a wilderness bird of, of North America. Let's go for the uh, the pileated woodpecker, a, uh, a bird that really is uh, still quite common in much of the woods of North America, but that every single time you see it, you just sort of think wilderness. Mm, yeah, certainly the woodpecker does conjure that, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, finally, number five, it is the President of the United States, George Bush. <laughs> Here's one I guess I want to be uh, careful uh, about. <laughs> um, well, George Bush is, if nothing else, a sort of a complicated figure. Let's just leave it uh, at that and try to think of a bird that is uh, particularly uh, c- complex. Um, and, oh, I'll toss in the house sparrow of all things. Um, it's a bird that perhaps can seem sort of a prosaic and ordinary, but that really has a, a fascinating and sort of a checkered past. Uh, the house sparrow is just a bird that the more you sort of start to appreciate the more you start to realize it, the, uh, realize what it's about, the more you start to understand it. You realize it's just a complicated bird. It's a bird that's easy to disparage, uh, but it's also a bird that I think is rather complex. So maybe I shouldn't go any farther with this analysis and just say that George Bush is a complicated figure, and so is the house sparrow. Okay, indeed, indeed. I, I'm that's up to, uh, to, to you all to figure out. <laughs> but we'll call him a house sparrow for all right, now. All right, very good. All right, well, uh, Mr. Floyd, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game. And, it's been my and, pleasure. And again, talking about the book, which is, of course, the Smithsonian Field Guide to Birds of North America. Thank you again. Thank you very much. It was our pleasure. Goodbye. All right, and now all the way from Dagobah, it's our good friend, Jedi Master Yoda. Yoda, how are you doing? Mm, cold and freezing I am. Dark and down the planet has become. Mm, ice everywhere I see, but dry it is. Mysterious and confounded I am. Is that ice from the dark side of the Force? Mm, dark ice is not, but white and dry. Wow, is it coming from some other planet, this ice? Mm, evaporate the ice dust and CO2 comes out. Frozen CO2, this dry ice is. Oh my, can you control the dry ice with the force? Only with space and insulation can it be chilled. All right, well, good to know. Uh, Hopefully uh, you can use it with your battles against the Emperor. Good food, good food. All right, and that's all for this week's episode of the Grok Science Show. That's right, we'll be back next week with more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.